Welcome to Tech Matters, sharing our vast business and development experience with developers like you. Here are your hosts, Stephen Feather and Patrick Shetta. If you had the opportunity to build the perfect development or business environment, what would your team look like? What would you be looking for? Are you looking for technical skills, personality, culture fit, um, somebody to work remote or on site? Um, let's go ahead and start with technical skills. Yeah, those are all um, excellent things to to address. Um, technical skills, I think, is uh, usually early on in people's uh, minds when you're thinking of building a technical team or a, a product. Um, I think it's very important uh, – doesn't even need to be spoken, but it's extremely important that you have the proper technical people in place. Um, there's uh, different things that you need to address. Um, what's their education level? What's their what's their experience level? Uh, what what is their experience with tools? Their their repositories and things like that. So I think that all of those things really really need to be addressed early on when you're bringing in your technical team. Um, and maybe we can start with uh, you know, experience. Maybe uh, we could talk about that first, uh, formal versus informal experience. Uh, I know that it's very, very popular these days for people to uh, be in boot camps and uh, get their experience from those, uh, as opposed to perhaps pursuing a formal education, which is certainly admirable, uh, avoiding huge college debt, University debt is uh, probably something that everyone would want to do. I think, though, there is a difference of uh, things that you're exposed to. Now, in my opinion, what I've seen, uh, people to compare the two, people coming through with a university degree probably are going to be exposed to some things that the boot camp people may not have been. For example, data structures, uh, algorithms, uh, algorithm efficiencies, and things like that. Now, I'm not an expert on what they're teaching in boot camps, but I would expect to see that if someone told me their experience uh, and, and I could compare the two. Maybe I, I, I think that. I would agree with that. Um, the folks that I know that have come out of a formal four or six year, have a CS degree, um, really have a base understanding of how computers behind the scenes work at a lower level, and that allows them to use a higher programming language or a higher level programming language more efficiently. You ask somebody, hey, do you know JavaScript? And the answer is yes. You ask somebody why something occurs in their JavaScript code, they may say, um, I don't know. Somebody else may come back and say, because if you look at the specs of the V8 engine, this is what you're going to expect. This is the way the language was written. And the language was written this way because of these algorithms, because this is how a logic gate works, Those, the extreme side of programming that most folks don't really talk about at a high level on a regular basis. Um, I think there's a huge value to that, particularly when we're working in a space, and, and this is an opinion, and an opinion from an old guy. Uh, we used to have 256K of memory on devices. We're back to that in some of the IoT things, and the ability to write small, efficient code is important. Uh, something that is lost, I think, when you're given a framework and you're taught at a boot camp, use this framework, we can solve all your problems. Totally agree. Um, and you, you mentioned uh, hardware and considerations for memory. It, it reminded me that 
a couple of things that I learned in, in school that I never use now, but I find it valuable information, was things like programming directly to the uh, Motorola 68000 microprocessor and probably did it in assembly and setting up some very trivial uh, state machine stoplight circuits or something. Um, but we were hooked up to hardware. You were writing software, directly interfacing with hardware, and it was very valuable for me to see that not only is it possible, which everyone knows it is possible, but kind of how it's possible and some of the low-level stuff that goes on. So if we're writing uh, software in particular languages and we always stay, hey, up here, I, I write JavaScript only, it's very interesting to be able to associate it with what is going on below when things are compiled down all the way down to the to the metal level. And just to have that understanding uh, can help you get a slightly different and more complete view of what the big picture is of what you're doing. Your understanding of state machines comes from a very, from the ability to sit and say, I understand how the real world works on and off, which is the very basic gate that we have inside of a computer circuit. And from that, you can bring that up to JavaScript, you can bring that up into Java, you can bring that up into Objective-C or any of the other higher level languages. But your understanding came from formal education in school, which most likely somebody at a boot camp is not getting. Yes. All right. Totally so agree I, with that. I, that's kind of where we're at. And, and it's not that we're saying you shouldn't go to boot camp. I, I'm with you. I, if that's what it's going to take to move you on, you're just going to make sure that you're, when you're a candidate and you're filling out your CV, you've got a little bit more than that. Um, and let's talk about some of those things. If somebody's, If you're looking for somebody on your team, should we be talking about skills tests? The way Google does, sit down and take 25, well, Google, Amazon, uh, a bunch of the firms are doing that now. You sit and you spend an entire day testing, and they ask you really random questions at times. Excellent discussion point. Um, I know that there's more discussion to be had about personality of a person, but let's just talk about testing. I personally think that you have to do some, so you have to be able to tell if this person should even be sitting in front of you, which sometimes if recruiters have a busy day, this person might not actually be the right person to be sitting in front of you. So assuming that they are, you have to be able to tell what level they're at, what is their basic skill level um, as far as can they even recognize the syntax of the language? And I, I hate to be condescending like that, but it's very possible that some people have had other people write code for them, submit those for interviews and exams and things. And you say, write, write me this language and write me the entry point, the, the main loop, if you will. How does that look? They might not know. What is the main loop? How do you start a program? When you say go, what does it do? Uh, some very basic things. And so you need to be able to screen for that. Now, the higher level technical screening things, I think, can be overkill. Um, I have in the past interviewed for both Amazon and Google and gone through those tests, the early 2000s tests, where you're talking about manhole covers and windows and gas stations and those type of things. I've certainly been through those and thought at the time they were a little bit ridiculous, but understood that it was part of the game. And then when you would actually get through to the programming interviews, they're so microscopically hard on little nuances of things that I would get to the point where I'm not sure I want to work for you anymore. And, and 
as an aside, I might have even sabotaged an, an interview or two uh, after I decided that I did not even want to work for them. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely skill tests are important. I, I don't advocate going overboard, uh, super, super difficult things, just so the interviewer feels superior. Uh, you need to know, can they do this job? We'll get to personality in a minute, but can you even technically do this job? Sure. Sure. Um, you, you mentioned somebody submitting somebody else's work. You're going to go out, you're going to look and see if they've got a GitHub repo. You're going to look and see what kind of work they've got. You're going to look to see is that their own work? Is this original stuff? Or are they just forking a bunch of other people's stuff and never actually changing it? They're just like pre-populating their GitHub repo- repository. Uh, we've, we've seen padding of that nature. We've heard stories. Um, I think original work is a big deal. Is somebody who wants to be involved in the computer industry, who wants to be a coder, who wants to be a developer or a UI, and we'll get to some of the specific jobs in a little bit, but do they have an interest outside of just 9 to 5? Are they working on other stuff? What what are they playing with? And GitHub is a really good way to see what somebody's interests are. Excellent, excellent point. And not only can you see what their interests are, but you can also gauge some type of passion about it. So if you're interviewing someone for a JavaScript job and you see that some projects they're working on are maybe some type of engines or state machine engines or something like that that is not relevant to the job you're hiring them for, but you see that they're working on it, then that would be an excellent point to bring up in an interview and say, tell me about that, because if they are working on it, they have a passion for it. And someone speaking passionately about some code that they're working on that is not relevant to the job is the best way to get a really good feel, I think, for how they might uh, become passionate about what you need them for. Absolutely. I, I would agree with that. At the same time, a caution that if you go out and look at somebody's Git repo, you, you don't want to make an assumption about them if there's not stuff on there. Not everything that I've ever worked on or you've worked on would be allowed on a public repo. You can't make an assumption about somebody's knowledge base based upon what you see or don't see inside their repo. The last thing you want to hear is, oh, I see that the last thing you committed was this. You look like you were a big deal in this area of knowledge or something. Or you don't have this repo forked, so you must know nothing about this subject. That's that's a little arrogant and tr- standoffish. Um, so you got to be careful when you look at both sides of that when evaluating somebody's public work, if you would. Good point. Yeah, which leads us into personalities. <laughs> if if once we talk about somebody's technical skills, um, as they're sitting there in an interview, or you're going through their CV and you're trying to get a feel for them, um, personality is a big deal when you're hiring somebody or you're looking to contract somebody. Um, you don't want somebody who's a, a total jerk. Um, we, we came up with three criteria that are pretty much killers. Um, are they aggressive? Is this somebody who's always going to be in your face, always upset about stuff? They're not going to work well with the team. Um, and then yours was. Right. Uh, I think the, the one that I l- work least well with is a passive aggressive person who seems to be very agreeable when you propose things, uh, that perhaps they can improve on very agreeable and then comes back with, um, implementations or designs that are totally opposite of that. And they're basically doing what they want, but they won't publicly say, I disagree with you. The public 
interfaces, I agree with you, and then the implementation is I do whatever I want and I don't respect you. Sure. And it all comes down to not respecting the team and respecting the relationships and that that always cause problem. Like you you said the overly aggressive person, at least you know how to deal with them. That's true. You can say I would like to propose this to Stephen and I expect he's going to push back in this way. So I'm going to be prepared for that. As opposed to I'm going to propose this, I really have no idea what he's going to say, but now I have to prepare for what I think he might do passive aggressively in the outcome. That's so hard to manage. And of the three, we're going to come to passive in a little bit, but of the three, um, passive aggressive is the most manipulative of the three um, because they have control over everybody else that they interact with. And if you see it from that point of view, it's easy to understand why they fall back to that position. They're in control even if they don't have the title or uh, maybe don't even have the technical skills to be somebody in charge. Uh, passive is the other one we were talking about. You do want somebody who's going to push back on bad ideas. You don't want somebody who just passively codes uh, in your group or passively does a design that looks terrible. If you're talking about UI, UX, you you really do want somebody who has an opinion. And, and that comes back to passion for their technical skills. So, you know, go ahead. I'll let you finish. It. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just thought of um, a passive scenario that I think would just really annoy me would be someone who maybe isn't too aggressive, maybe comes off as lazy. And then if you have to confront them, I hate to use the word confront, but you have to have a discussion about something that you feel might not be right. And then they kind of throw up their hands. Well, I could do it that way. And they will, but they don't necessarily believe it's the right way. And maybe they don't even have an opinion or they're just too passive and to whatever, I can do that. You really want someone who has at least a little spark of passion. Sure. If you have no passion and they just go through life and go through their job just doing whatever you say, it's going to bring you down. I see this a lot with outsourcing firms. Um, you have somebody who's paid to code nine to five. They have a boss who answers to you as a firm, and so you've paid them to do it. That guy has no ownership in your code. He's just the same way we kind of derogatorily hear people talk about UX folks. They're just a guy slinging code. He doesn't care about what he wrote. He doesn't care if somebody else has to maintain it. He doesn't have any pride. He's going home at 5 o'clock because he doesn't have ownership in the product. And when we talk about outsourcing later on, we'll definitely come into some of the stuff that you've got to do to work around that. Um, So we're talking about technical skills, personalities, location. Are you going to be on site? Or are you going to be remote? And I think there's an advantage to both. Um, as a person who works only remote, mostly only remote, <laughs> um, I love it. And it works great for me. And my schedule during the day is totally independent of my productivity. Unless, of course, there's particular meetings where everyone has to sync up, a uh, you know a thread join that has to happen with the group. Uh, it's kind of up to me. And and I have to be held accountable and be ethical enough that I produce what I'm supposed to pr- produce. And if I'm billing hourly, that it's it's ethically billed. Um, so I personally love remote, but I also know that it's not for everyone. And some people struggle, especially moving right into it, that they can't quite get their groove. And there are certain things that can bring you down as far as not having human intera- human interaction and things like that. So... I think it's it's a particular skill that you need to have 
to be able to work remote, but then I might also argue that on-site has some great benefits. One thing I learned earlier in my career is the people who advance in the company smoke. So, okay, that's an odd general statement. <laughs> Particularly in 2017, where we don't <laughs> want to destroy the ozone layer and everybody wants to be healthy. But we're also old guys with things. We used to be able to smoke on an airplane. Yes. And um, what you would see is people regularly took smoke breaks. And the people who smoked all hung out together. And they weren't necessarily from the same department. They were cross-department. They were CEOs and janitors hanging out. And the people had would grow this intrinsic knowledge and you would meet people that you wouldn't meet, and you would grow this little bond of people that would, like it or not, help you in your career. It would absolutely, it, it kind of now is the equivalent to you must network, and you really need to go to meetups, and you really need to grow your network so that people think of you when they need this. That's what it was. It was the smoking group standing outside the building before, and that is... It's not exactly what happens these days as far as smoking, but it happens as far as an on-site, maybe around, they call it the water cooler, or, or grabbing coffee in the morning and speaking with folks that you normally wouldn't speak with. I think it's critical for internal networking, for getting getting the ear of maybe someone who's a higher level, who maybe you're on a team where there's a little... Uh, uh, dissension about what direction the product could go and you know you're right because of your experience but these people who don't have the experience might be arguing against you and you could in these little side groups coffee cooler uh water cooler discussions uh, you could be meeting with someone who has influence over that and you could mention you know I, i just never get to say it but here's what i think and that could stick in the back of their head and it could help shape directions uh, either positively or negatively, but I tend to think that things work out in a positive manager mani- <laughs> manner, uh, given uh, that the right people are are thinking about it. Even with all the tools we have today, and we'll have a we say that a lot. We're going to have an episode. We've got a whole series lined up for the next two years, but we're going to talk about tools for working remote. Um, there is something to be said about a face to face versus time in a Slack channel or time sending email. Um, I, I absolutely agree that times are different now than they used to be, and you have to um, make the effort for FaceTime. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about some of the roles that we're going to look at. Uh, we're not going to dive into these too much today. Uh, when you're deciding on whether or not you're going to pull in a product owner, a product manager, scrum master, depending on how you run your shop or your startup, um, tell me a little bit about what I'm looking for in a product owner. What are those expectations? Right. So I think that deciding early on how you want to to run things, whether you want to do full agile, scrum, waterfall, whatever, I think is kind of an important decision up, up front. So if you're talking, um, you know, product owner, some people might call it product manager, uh, things like that. Um, it's basically a similar role. Um, you, you have to be able to recognize, is this person going to be able to manage my product? Are they going to be able to own the product properly? Or is it just someone who knows how to make schedules? Uh, they, you really have to have a little bit vested in it. I think that 
you have um, interaction with uh, stakeholders. So, so perhaps you have a little bit bigger company that, um, you know, more than a couple people in a startup, you're going to have stakeholders that you might not as developers deal with directly. This person is critical for that. So there are certain people skills, uh, certainly, uh, you know, give me your opinion, but I feel technical skills in nearly every role are so important that at least you can't sit down and write code, but you can understand when I'm talking about certain technical things. I agree. I, and this is a, a holdover or a change, I guess, the holdover in PM. For those that don't understand the difference between waterfall, which is the old school way of doing things, and the agile, which is the new cool way of doing things, um, Patrick and I kind of fall in the middle. Again, another episode that we're going to have a really in-depth conversation about the best way to take the the best of both of those and kind of combine them. But in the product ownership world, a lot of the folks that moved up as project owners or project managers, they'd start off as engineers back in the old school enterprises. And so they came along, somebody sent them off to business class, they came back, and they understood the business requirements for all of this stuff. But they could also have a decent conversation with an engineer. So if you've got a guy at the telco and he says, hey, I need to talk to the Unix team, he understood that, and he also understood the hardware side of things. And so when the business guys came and said, hey, we need to cut costs in these areas, or we need a system that does this, he could effectively communicate with hardware, with software, and with business. Now we've moved into a place where, kind of like the boot camps, we send somebody, and not necessarily always a tech, we send them off to a quick course, they come back, they've got the title of Scrum Master, which is the newer, nicer, more PC way of saying they're the product manager, and they come back, they ought to have technical skills, but I think too often modern Scrum Masters don't. They're just a business person who used to be a project, a PM, and we moved to Agile, so now we're going to make you the Scrum Master. And they don't necessarily, and, and this is from my experience, and I'd, I'd love to hear feedback to see how many other people have experienced this. I know you guys that are Scrum Masters are all going to swear, that's not me, I'm not that guy. But I think enough other folks are going to come back and say, yeah, we've, we've seen that. Um, but they, they sit and they say, hey, we, they behave the same way as the old PMs did, without the technical knowledge. Um, a, a scrum master has to be able to say, these are the things we need to get done. This is how we're going to do it. Y'all go do your work and trust that the engineering team knows what they're doing. But they also be, have to be able to have the technical knowledge to go back to the business side and say, you guys are not giving us enough money to fulfill these or you have unrealistic expectations on these items. Um, now, granted, engineering was supposed to hand them what the time frames are, but those things change. Um, so I think in the middle of that word world between waterfall and agile and the mix, um, there are expectations that devs would expect their PM or their scrum to be looking out for them to be realistic in what gets put on a sprint or, you know, what the product owner or business side is asking for. And as an owner, they want to make sure they're getting their money's worth. Um, we're just not off in la la land saying we've got a thousand things sitting on our sprint and, oh, it just go to the backlog. It'll be okay. Just rotate stuff for seven or eight years in frameworks <laughs> because we just don't want to touch it. Another I'm thing not I'd... pointing at anybody, just saying. <laughs> it does happen. Um, another thing that you made me think of is if you are doing um, one of the more strict agile uh, procedures, uh, maybe Scrum itself, and you have a Scrum master who is independent of a product owner, um, 
then I think some of the some of the skills that you would need to have in that person are definitely like we were just saying you need to have a little bit of the technical knowledge because one of their roles is perhaps in a, in a daily stand-up uh, you you ask everybody what have you accomplished what are you going to accomplish and what's blocking and if you have some folks who are new to pure agile if that's your thing they're going to start saying well I tried to connect to this and that's broken and, and start going into a deep dive. And that scrum master in their pure form has to be able to say, I recognize what you're saying technically, and I need to cut you off because you're going to go down this deep, dark hole and it's going to derail my meeting. And they need to say, we're going to take that aside. Who do you need for that to take, take aside? And we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Or they can say, this is going to be a 10 second sentence and it's not going to run off. Let the person say what they're going to say, and really be this very black and white, um, you know, go, no go, and and keep the thing moving so that your daily standup is truly this very short thing, and it's valuable. So if that's the type of role that you have, then absolutely the technical knowledge or exposure uh, is important. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, developers, we mentioned some of the things we're looking for technical skills earlier kind of definitely were geared towards looking at developers. So we'll breeze over that real quick. Let's talk about QA and testing, hiring somebody or contracting somebody to specifically find our problems and point them out to us. That's not exactly a, a friendly touchy feely seventies uh, moment there, is it? I, I would categorically say, please consider that you need QA so especially if you're a new company and a new small startup, you might think, well, we don't need that. Our developers find all the problems. Um, I would like to say, please look past that and get at least someone in that role. Go ahead. <laughs> so I was going to go on to say um, that in that role, typically what I've seen historically is that there is almost a headbutting relationship right, <laughs> between development and QA. So what happens? Uh, perhaps if you're working on a new feature or a bug comes in and the developer says, I fixed it, sends it over to QA, which even the way I just said it implies some type of waterfall thing. And I go on to work on the next bug and QA goes through their very methodical list, check boxes of how it should behave and they find that something doesn't work. And then they say, this thing's broken again, and then they throw it back. So you, so you get this very um, competitive, the developer gets a bug back from QA. They're like, oh, these guys are ridiculous to work with. And then QA says, why don't these guys do their job in the first place? And you tend to get this um, resistance, and, and it can grow into this animosity. And especially uh, in a case or two I've seen where the QA people are contracted, they... And especially if they're contracted and outsourced, they are being extremely closely monitored for their performance. Their job is to find a problem. They get paid to justify that they found problems. Yes. Yeah. If they don't find any, then we don't need you. Totally agree with that statement, <laughs> that, that, that it exists, yes. not that it's true. Um, so what I like to promote 
is coming from a developer background, and I've done this exactly one place where I've been able to grow this um, relationship with with QA at the time was one person, um, and I like to I take the challenge that that we are this symbiotic relationship, and I take the challenge that. I'm not going to deliver you any bugs. And then they take the point of view, oh, no, you're not. I'm going to find every bug that you can possibly ever create and have this playful challenge between each other. So what would happen then in the dynamic day-to-day would be I would submit something, and QA would say, "Would it, this woman would even call me up. We're just across the hall. She'd call me up and say, could you come over here? And then I knew that she's going to challenge me on something. And I would, you know, just shake my fist and go, Oh no, she didn't find that. And we'd go over there and she'd show me. And 50% of the time it was truly something I missed. And she would laugh. And then I'd be like, dang it, you're not going to get me next time. And it was this fun thing. 50% of the time I could say, you know, that that's related to either a feature or something else. It's really not this. So, you know, look past it or take note of that, but that will be fixed when something is not related to this. And there was no, ha ha, you're a stupid QA tester. There was never that. And there was never the animosity. It was fun. And the relationship was very fantastic. But like I said, it was exactly once. And usually it's the headbutting. Sure. One of the arguments that it would be made, and I can always hear it in the back of my head, if you did TDD, a lot of your stuff disappears. Um, if you're doing um, code reviews on your check-ins, a lot of that stuff will disappear. Yes, a lot of it does, but there are some things that computers can't check, and you definitely still need to have a QA. Instead of outsourcing, do you think maybe, and again, a topic maybe for a different day, but we'll touch on it real brief the possibility of rotating somebody from inside of the dev team in and out of that seat. Somebody who already has ownership in the product, who loves the product, enjoys where they're working, maybe vesting, that kind of stuff. But you rotate that seat in and out so that they're kind of still part of the group. They understand the code. Um, If you have folks who don't have ownership of specific sections of a product or code base, you can do that. If you got somebody who owns this and that's all they ever work on, they may not be able to rotate off of that. But just something to think about. But if we get rid of the animosity between dev and QA, I, I think that we'd have a lot going for us. Yes. And I've personally never been in a, a situation where there is that rotating thing. So I haven't seen it. I don't know how well it works. We'll call it theoretical. <laughs> but it's, it's very interesting. I think there there would be trouble with if you took someone like the main architect they're not going to be able to but perhaps just like you said certain business units that are freed up or maybe it be scheduled that way i I would be very curious to see how that works and i think that it would give some excellent insights across the whole team as to what everybody else does guys when i was doing qa last week i saw we were seemed to have these bugs um can we Maybe there's a way we can fix that as a dev team so that we don't see those things come through. Yeah, maybe a possibility. That'd be neat. Leaves us with UI and UX. Um, don't really hire a lot of folks in-house in what we do. Uh, we usually contract most of our UI, UX stuff because in mobile or the desktop development space, you build your interface and it kind of goes from there until you come back with a second round of testing. 
if you're in an enterprise, you may already have folks that on staff that are doing graphics art and those kind of things. They might be able to do UI. Are they necessarily pros in UX? And what are your thoughts on that? I would 100% agree with your statement that I also don't hire it too much. Um, and a lot of times, if people will approach me, maybe for a smaller startup project, say, here's the app we want to build, and here's what it's going to look like, as opposed to, I would like to build this restaurant finding app. I don't really know what it should look like. You don't get people like that. They usually have some idea yep. that that they've thought about. So... I think, you know, if we were building a, you know, greenfield team like we've kind of been discussing and we get to dictate that, there are some things that I would uh I would want to look for. And I'll, I'll be a little vague about it, but you certainly have to see a portfolio and understand how they think as a designer. So if we're talking about the UI part, you know, someone who shows you their portfolio and it's all over the place, absolutely all these crazy different designs, they probably didn't come up with those on their own. But you can tell, uh, and uh, sometimes you'll see it maybe on Dribble or something, where things that they've done on the side, and you can kind of get the feel for their style, That's uh, that would be a real good data point when considering something. What's their style? And is it modern? Is it, maybe if we're speaking about mogul, mobile, that th- everything looks like you know, iOS only, but we are going to have Android. Will they be able to handle it or vice versa? Um, so there are those issues, but I think consistency consistency, and what's the, their vision and what's their style uh, would be a very important point. We had a portfolio come through and as I'm, as I'm looking through, it was on the web and as I'm going through it, they were applying to handle on behalf of a client the mobile development and the interface and all that kind of stuff. No UX experience, just simply the UI. And the more I looked at their portfolio, the less mobile stuff I saw. I saw posters, I saw designers and flyers and stuff like that. And I thought, you have no idea what an interface is supposed to look like because you're talking one-dimensional and quickly suggested to our client they probably ought to look somewhere else. Um, Last two things we want to talk about. These are two external roles that you may not have necessarily in your team, but somebody you kind of have to interface with, you may have to bring on board. Um, We'll quickly go through these before we run out of time. Uh, Domain experts. Um, Domain experts are these folks that they have a legacy knowledge of what the past has been. They're the old guys. Um, We've both had to deal with them. They understand the big picture. They understand why some of these things were done. We've got to relate to them. Um, Share something about that. Right, and I think it's it is still common to see this uh, with perhaps some some large enterprises who are uh, believe it or not just discovering that they need to go mobile. You have uh, a typical scenario would be all of our functionality is on our website, so whether you're, maybe your loans or financial or something, and behind the scenes, it's very likely being driven by even stuff that's mainframe. But whatever it is, it's legacy technology that is in place. They maybe over time have upgraded to have a fancy new, you know, J2EE website functionality in between and and updated UI and everything looks great. But now when you're coming in as mobile, the bottom line is you're dealing with legacy, legacy uh, technology and and likely, if it's old enough, 
those guys are still there. <laughs> you don't see it so much anymore, but if you go to a company and they have mainframes, some of those guys might still be there, which is, can be to your advantage. So it's definitely something from a technology point of view that you could have to deal with. Particularly if you need them to run a job. (laughs) Yes. For you young kids, that's the way it used to be. (laughs) Yes. So being able to recognize that you're coming into this project and you're going to maybe mobilize a website, not create a mobile website, but create a mobile tool perhaps that interfaces and and complements a website is is a realistic thing to see that you have to be aware that you're going to be dealing with some of these legacy guys you have to acknowledge that they're going to think differently than you they are still the legacy guys because they don't think like you and are bouncing around to the latest frameworks and angular and things like that They don't do that because they don't think like that, but they are extremely good at what they do. They're very proud about what they have done, and it's probably a good decision to not come in being overly aggressive and not criticize them for their ways and criticize them that, ha-ha, it's an old COBOL guy, and it's very difficult to work with. And, And in that statement, I think that it's very critical that you do figure out how to work with these guys and establish a good working relationship, bottom line is you have to deal with them. They have the stuff that you need, and if you're going to be a jerk to them, they're way more experienced at being a jerk than you are. (laughs) On that note, we're going to close out. Basically what we've said is if you're building a team, you're going to want a team that works well together, that has the technical experience, um, and you want to fill in all the pieces. You could hear this from the other side if you're a dev What are shops looking for? What are teams going to be looking for? We know your time is important. We appreciate you spending it with us. If you have questions for us, visit techmatters.fm. In the top right-hand corner, click the Ask button. Put it in, and we'll see if that doesn't become an episode in the future. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for joining.